Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, Christ Community Church at all four campuses, I want to hear, how you doing? How you doing? Good. Okay, good. So I hear a lot of goods out there, but I just want to ask a question. Really? Really? Are you, are you good? Isn't that the weirdest question? We do it all day long. We're always saying, how are you doing? How are you doing? And we're always saying, oh, good, great. Things are great. I'm doing just fine. But really, are you? Uh, the other day, my daughter brought home a book from the library. It was a book of poetry by Shel Silverstein. And most of those were pretty, you know, silly kind of, you know, zany poems. And we got a kick out of reading those. But every once in a while, old Shell would drop in kind of a thoughtful one, uh, some that bordered on profound. And there was this one that struck me. It's called Underface. Underneath my outside face, there's a face that none can see. A little less smiley, a little less sure, but a whole lot more like me. Have you been able to relate to that? I wonder how many of us have an underface, a face that doesn't quite match our outward expression. I don't mean that we're hypocrites. I mean just if we actually kind of let out what was really going on on the inside, we'd come across a lot less smiley, a lot less sure. According to the National Institute for Mental Health, every year, 17 million Americans suffer from an experience of major depression. That means one in 14 adults, let me say, yeah, one in 14 adults experiences depression every year. And the younger you are, the more likely it is. So one in seven young adults between 18 and 25 and one in six teenagers experience depression every single year. That means that wherever you're sitting at Christ Community Church, whatever campus, if you look down the row, it's very likely that several people that you're sitting near experience depression this year. And you might be surprised at who falls into that category, your boss, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, even your pastor. The stats for mental health about pastors are the same as the general population. First time I ever thought that I might be depressed was in my early 20s. I had just taken my first real ministry job. I was a high school pastor. From the outside, you probably would have thought things were going pretty well. But on the inside, I was just falling apart. It was a stressful job. I fell in over my head. I didn't have very good boundaries or good habits yet. And so kind of steadily over the course of two years, I sunk deeper and deeper into just kind of a haze. It was like a dark cloud had descended over my life. I would wake up each morning with this sense of dread about the day. I didn't want to get out of bed. I, I didn't have motivation for the things I needed to do. At night, I wasn't sleeping very well. Uh, during the day, I, I couldn't focus or concentrate on a lot of things. That just kind of made work even more stressful. Uh, a, a lot of times, I would get pretty low, although usually it was more like being flat, just kind of empty on the inside, emotionally kind of there wasn't much going on there. The, the strongest emotion wasn't so much sadness, but actually shame. It was sort of like the inner critic inside of me got turned up to 11, just yelling at me all the time, like, what is wrong with you? You, you are such a failure. You are a fake. You're an idiot. You're worthless. I just couldn't you know, shake that voice in my head. The circumstances in my life changed eventually, and things started to get better. And so I thought, well, maybe this is just the, you know, the situation I was in, kind of new situation, uh, not so hard. But a few years later, the same thing started to happen. And I realized that uh, maybe this is more of a pattern in my life. 
I actually kind of reflected back and I realized, you know, as a child and as a teenager, I, I sort of had these sort of seasons, these moods, and, and, and I realized that this is actually a fixture of, of who I am. It's kind of wired into my personality. And I, at that point, I realized I need to figure this out. Sent me on a search to figure out where can I find hope in the midst of depression. We're in the second week of our series called The Lies We Tell Ourselves. We're talking about false beliefs that we hold that keep us trapped. And we're not just talking about the official beliefs we have, you know, the ones that kind of if someone asked you, what do you believe, this would be the answer you'd give. We're talking kind of the gut beliefs, the beliefs that shape the, the kind of instincts of how you think the world works, why it is the way it is, that shape how you respond to situations. And what we're hoping in this series is that the truth of God, God's word speaks to those places of our heart so that we can be free from the problems those create. The lie we're looking at today is this. There is no hope in my depression. There's no hope in my depression. It's a lie many of us believe. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. The book of Psalms is found right smack in the middle of the Bible. It is the ancient songbook of the people of Israel. These are the songs that God gave to his people so that we would sing them to him. And for thousands of years now, faithful Jews and Christians have been worshiping with these songs. We're actually going to be looking at two psalms today. Psalm 42 and 43 originally were one song, uh, but uh, centuries after the Bible was written, people came through and put the chapter markers in, and they made a mistake. They actually thought this was two songs, and they split it up. And you're going to see that it's one song because it has the same chorus in both psalms. Uh, and so we're going to read both of them together. And I'm actually going to ask for your help as we do this. I'm going to read the verses of the psalm, but when we get to that chorus, it's going to be highlighted on the screen, and I'd like you to read it out with me. So I'll indicate when that happens. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Together. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? 
Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Let's thank God for this song. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start by asking the question that's at the center of this psalm. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? What causes depression? Why do people get depressed? When we ask that question, a lot of times we're looking for a single answer. We want it to be sort of like strep throat. You know, we know the bacteria that causes it. You can prescribe an antibiotic. It's simple, straightforward. You know how to deal with it. But depression isn't like that, in part because depression is not one thing. It's not one thing. Uh, Psychologists identify a whole range of different types of depression, from major depression to bipolar disorder to postpartum depression to seasonal affective disorder to depression that's connected with anxiety or grief or PTSD or uh, other mental health concerns. There's all sorts of different forms of depression. So when someone says that they're depressed, they might be referring to any number of things that we call that. There's a whole set of symptoms that go along with depression, things like feeling down, a loss of energy from an interest in things that you enjoy, uh, fatigue, uh, insomnia, irritability, weight gain or weight loss, a loss of appetite, difficulty concentrating or making decisions, a sense of worthlessness, overpowering guilt or shame, recurring thoughts about death, either a desire to die or even thoughts of taking your own life. And to be diagnosed with depression, you don't have to have all of these symptoms, which means if I say I'm depressed and you say you're depressed, we might not be experiencing the exact same set of things. It might not be the same for both of us. Depression is not one thing. And it's not caused by just one thing. I read five or six books in preparing for this sermon about depression. A couple of those that I would recommend to you are this. Uh, One is called Christians Get Depressed Too by David Murray. And another one is called Coping with Depression by Sun Yun Tan and John Ortberg. These are both really accessible, uh, straightforward books about this, very practical. I'd, I'd recommend them. But every book that I read had these long lists of sections where they would, would talk about the causes of depression. And I started kind of compiling a list to you know, maybe include in this. And there were, were 15 or 20 things by the time I you know, finished my list. And I realized I can't describe all of these things. But it, it seemed like they fell into four big categories. There were some that were physical factors. For many of us, it's the biology uh, that we have, our brain chemistry that makes us more prone to depression. Some were psychological factors, patterns of thoughts and feelings that have been shaped by our upbringing and our experiences and our personality. There are relational and social factors. If you're in a hard family situation or you've lost someone close to you or you're isolated or lonely, you don't have people with you when you're going through a difficult time. That can be a factor in depression. There are spiritual factors. How you think and feel about God. What you think he thinks and feels about you. How you deal with your sin and your guilt and your shame. How you see the world and your purpose in it. All of those things can factor into depression. So with each person, there are different factors involved, different combinations of things. So there's no one-size-fits-all explanation for why someone is depressed. And that means that there is no silver bullet for addressing it. If you're going to find hope in your depression, it's probably going to come from multiple angles using all four of those factors. Now, I am a pastor. I'm not a psychologist or a physician. So it's going to be easiest for me to address the spiritual and the relational sides of things. But uh, as we go through this message, I want us to be holistic about it. So we're going to touch on all four of them where we can. Let's go back to the psalm for a moment. I I want you to see three truths 
that I find really helpful when talking about depression. First is this. You don't have to be okay to be heard. You don't have to be okay to be heard. Sometimes when you are depressed, it feels like God is a million miles away. And sometimes it seems like the things you've got going on inside of you, the, the sorrow, the fear and the anger, they're things that you don't feel comfortable expressing. You, you listen to religious people talk about God or pray out loud in church and you think, and they never say these sorts of things that are going on inside me. I don't know that I could say those things to God. But that's what's amazing about Psalms like this. It's so honest about what it feels like when God is distant. Just look at the opening verses. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I, we used to sing this song in my church growing up. It was this sort of sweet, sentimental, almost romantic song about longing for God with these words. And I always thought it was about someone who, you know, really just was, felt close to God. They loved being with him. But I read this in context and I realized this is someone who is spiritually dehydrated. They feel like God is far away and they're, they're so thirsty for God, wondering where he is and when the distance is going to end. And look at verse 9. It says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying all day long, where is your God? This doesn't sugarcoat it. He gives God an earful. He's questioning God. Prayers like this are known as lament songs. Lament could be translated complaints. It's complaining to God, saying, this is what's going on. Here is what I feel. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Do something. Where are you, God? And you would think that God doesn't want to hear these sorts of prayers, that they're not necessarily respectful. But it turns out that 40% of the Psalms, the, the largest category in the Psalms, are these complaint lament Psalms. And you know what that means? It means that not only is God willing to hear these sorts of prayers, he wants to hear these sorts of prayers. He, he wants us to be real and honest with him about what we're going through. And it makes sense when you think about the fact that God is a father and he loves us like his children. I, th I think about my daughters and my son. If there ever came a day when they felt like they couldn't come to me with what was troubling them, or that when they were going through something that they couldn't share that with me, e even if they were upset at me, if they couldn't talk to me, it would break my heart. And I think the same is true of God. He says, I want you to come to me with this. And he knows we need to do it because God is the ultimate realist. He knows how hard life actually is. He knows that we're going to need to say these sorts of things, every one of us. And so this is the, the paradoxical beauty of lament. When you feel like God is so far away, actually saying those things draws you closer to God. You've got, you got to understand this. You can't get in someone's face without being physically close to them. You cannot wrestle with someone without touching them. You cannot shout at someone without speaking words to them. Lament actually draws you closer to God when you feel like he is distant. I, I think lament is such a gift. Personally, I'm not sure I would still be a Christ follower if I didn't have lament. It's something I work into my daily rhythms of prayer along with gratitude and praise and all the rest. I, I do this on a daily basis, but sometimes when I really need to pour out my soul, just like it talks about in verse 4, I, I, I find an isolated place, a place where I'm not going to be hurt so that I can be loud if I need to. 
I can cry if I need to. I can, I can call out if I need to. My, my favorite place to do this is actually in my car because, you know, people can't hear you when you're in your car. Uh, although I usually find a secluded parking lot rather than like in my driveway. Like the neighbors are always like, oh, yeah, there's that pastor who always, always screams in his car. Hi, good to see you. So I find a place where I'm a little bit more isolated and I can just, I can yell, I can pour it out. We need to do this. Now, sometimes when you're in the midst of depression, it's less about those strong emotions. It's like I said before, sometimes it can feel just flat. Like you don't have, you can't generate words. When I'm in those times, I find it really, really helpful to actually go to somebody else's words. I find written prayers really, really beneficial for me because when I can't generate the words, I can kind of get started with someone else's words. The obvious place to go for this is the prayers that God actually wrote for us. Those are in the Psalms. Uh, if you're looking for the lament songs, they are spread throughout the Psalms, but most of them are towards the first half of the book. So if you're kind of looking for that, that's a, a, a kind of a tip for you. I also find it helpful to get books of prayers written by faithful Christians. Uh, I've got a couple I'll put up here that I found really helpful. One is called The Divine Hours, and the other one is called Every Moment Holy. That second book I, is just really amazing. I've been using it for the last year or so, and it, it's got prayers for all sorts of things you didn't realize you needed prayers for, um, and it's got some nice artwork in it as well, so I'd recommend that. Um, but I find when I use this, it's amazing to me how God provides through someone else's words the words I needed to say to God. It, it's the way that the, the Spirit actually moves to say, here, I'm, go, I'm gonna serve you. I'm gonna give you something you needed through other people who have been through what you've been through. It's really helpful for me. Now, whenever we talk about God feeling distant, it raises the question of sin. Because that's one of the ways that God can feel distant. If we have sin in our life we're holding on to, and we say, I'm, I'm not giving that up, I'm not going to repent of that. The Bible describes times when that creates a sense of heaviness in our life, a sense of God being far away, uh, something between us and him. And so the question comes up, if, if I'm feeling down, if I'm depressed, and I feel like God's far away, is that because of sin? Now, I, I would say this, it is always helpful you to ask the question, is there something in my life that I should be repenting of? Whether you're depressed or not, you should ask that every single day and you should be a part, that should be a part of your life. But I'll tell you this, in those occasions when God feels distant because of unrepentant sin, it is almost always, you know exactly what's going on. You're not going to be wondering, is there some sin out there? You're going to know God is, God is pointing at this in my life and I know that's what I need to confess. So if that's the case, you probably know already what's going on. But in the case of most depression, the root cause is not your sin, almost, almost never. Now, sinful responses to depression can really complicate things. If you have sort of sinful coping mechanisms, you go to drugs or alcohol or some other addictive behavior to kind of self-medicate, pornography, things like that. If you uh, develop bitterness and grudges and resentment, that can be a, a real problem. If you use your depression as an excuse for mistreating other people, one of the symptoms of depression is irritability. And I know that even in my own life, I've you know, been snappy with my family or, or impatient with them. And I've kind of even rationalized it in my own head to say, oh, they don't understand what I'm going through. And so, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But I got to remind myself, you know, I, I may be able to explain my behavior because of depression, but it doesn't excuse my behavior. I got to be responsible for that. So those sinful responses can complicate dealing with depression, but almost never are they the root cause of depression. The reason why I emphasis is, emphasize this is this. Uh, it, it is so hard when you are in the midst of dealing with mental health issues to have that layer of guilt saying, did I do this to myself? When so often it is a biological or psychological factor that has put you in that place in the first place. And we don't want to see someone who's depressed and assume, you know, it's probably because there's sin in their life. 
Because it's very likely that we'll, we'll end up like Job's friends who ended up blaming the victim for their own suffering rather than being there to help that person. I also want to address the, the question of anxiety and sin. Because you read the Bible and you see again and again, one of the most common things that's said in the Bible is do not be afraid, do not fear, do not be anxious. And someone who's anxious can read those and they say, oh man, that's, that's a command I've got to obey. It's just like do not steal, do not lie. If, if I'm afraid, I'm sinning, I'm disobeying a command from God. And, and so someone can have the thought, am I perpetually in sin because I've got an anxiety disorder? As you can imagine, that, that sort of thinking can be really hard to actually get out of your anxiety. It can complicate things. So let me clarify this. When you read the words, do not fear in the Bible, think of it in another context, okay? So I, I'm a dad. If I talk to one of my kids and I say to them, do not lie to me, and they lie to me, they're going to get in trouble, right? Now, if I say to my kids, don't be afraid, can you imagine any circumstance in which they continue to be afraid and I say, okay, now you're getting a timeout. Now you're in trouble. Like, I would never do that. Why do I say do not lie? It's because I don't want them to commit that sin. Why do I say do not be afraid? Because I want to comfort them. It's not a command. It's a form of encouragement. It's something I say to draw them out of their fear, not to, uh, you know, heap shame and guilt on them for being afraid. That's how you should read that when you read that in the Bible. It's not a command, it's a comfort. Whether you are anxious or depressed, if God feels far away and you feel like he doesn't hear your prayer, I want to tell you this, you do not have to be okay to be heard. Here's the second truth I want you to see in this psalm. You don't have to be okay to have hope. You don't have to be okay to have hope. Did you notice in the, the chorus that we read a few times here how two things exist together, a downcast soul and hope? It says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Most of the time we think of these things as an either-or situation. You can either be downcast or you can have hope, but you can't have both at the same time. But the Bible consistently, consistently presents us as having an emotionally complex spiritual life. Paul says that he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Jesus stands by a grave and promises resurrection and weeps his eyes out. The two can exist together. Of course, it's not an automatic thing. I, I heard one pastor say that hope is a skill that takes practice. So how do we learn the skill of having hope in the midst of depression? Well, it starts off with this. It starts by acknowledging that you might actually be depressed. A lot of people are nervous about labels. They don't want to use those sorts of words for themselves. But I'll just tell you this. Having language like that, having a name to call something you're experiencing can be incredibly freeing. It's a great place to start. And some of you may have just never even thought, well, oh, maybe, maybe what I'm going through has a name. Maybe it is depression. And I'd encourage you, maybe reflect on your life and say, hey, is this maybe what's happening? And, and see if uh, you can get some help for that. I just know that acknowledging the problem is the place where hope begins. Once you do that, though, you need to learn the skill of talking to yourself. Now, some of you are like, I already do that enough. What are you talking about? But did you notice in this psalm, the psalmist keeps speaking to his own heart. He says, why my soul are you downcast? He says, put your hope in God. He's speaking to himself. Usually we think of worship songs as, this is something I address to God, and most of the time that is. But in the psalms, it's often that we're saying, okay, heart, this is what you need to do. It's a brilliant insight because often we end up listening to our hearts more than we talk to our hearts. 
We take just whatever feeling, whatever thought comes bubbling up and we just go with it. We just say, okay, that's how I feel. That's what reality is. But what we need to do a lot of times is stop and say, okay, where did this come from? Where's that thought and that feeling uh, derived from? And is it true? Uh, Psychologists do this. They identify lots of different common patterns of false thinking that feed into depression. They're they're things like overgeneralizing. One hard thing happens today and your thought is, this always happens to me. My life is a mess. It's one mistake after another. Uh, Another pattern of false thinking is making assumptions about what other people are thinking. Uh, She looked at her watch. She's, She's probably bored. She doesn't want to talk to me. She doesn't like me very much. Most people don't like me very much. It's this assumption about what's going on inside. There's a pattern called magnification or uh, uh, catastrophizing, they call it. It's extrapolating from one mistake to a terrible outcome. I just yelled at my children. I must be a terrible parent. They're going to be in therapy for the rest of their lives because of this. All all sorts of patterns like this we fall into. They're they're not sinful, but they sort of just automatically bubble up and they, they shape how we interpret things and they feed into our depression and we've got to replace them with true thoughts. The skill is recognizing when that happens and saying, okay, is there another way to think about this? Uh, Verse six says this, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you. I will remember you. When we realize our thinking is distorted, we've got to remember the truth. We've got to remember the truth of what God has done for us. That he came to earth and became one of us. He shared in our burdens and our suffering. He gave himself on the cross to free us from our sin. He went through death and came out the other side so that we could have hope and life. We've got to remind ourselves of the truth of what God actually says about us. True things. He says, this is what's true of you. You are my daughter. You are my son. I've chosen you. You are dearly loved. You were made in my image. When I see you, you bring delight to my heart. God says all of those things in scripture. They're true about you. We've got to remind ourselves of the truth of what he has promised. He says, I'm not done with you. The story isn't over. This isn't the end. I'm making all things new, including you. One day, the night will end and the dawn will come. This is not where it all stops. We've got to remember those true things when we've got this distorted thinking. Now, as Christ followers, this doesn't just happen by thinking about it. We, We go through this process through prayer. In prayer is where we choose the hard choice of saying, I'm going to have hope even though I don't feel like having hope. It's this defiant choice. In in spite of what my feelings or my circumstances say, in spite of what my heart is screaming at me right now, I'm going to declare the story is not over. We, We pray a prayer like in 43 verse three, send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. These are hard prayers to pray because sometimes you are praying things that you don't believe yet. They're praying things that you want to believe so that one day you will believe them. You pray them and say, I think this is true even though I don't feel it's true. And over time as you do that, it starts to sink in. It doesn't happen immediately. You're not going to hear one sermon or read one Bible verse and, well, hey, that fixed it. But over time, it will reshape your your thoughts and your feelings. This takes often a lot of journaling and prayer and practice. And most of the time, for most of us, it takes help from other people. This is where counselors and psychologists come into play. 
Uh, personally, I think that everybody should go to counseling at least one time in their life. I sort of feel like it's like physical health, okay? Day to day, most of us, we take care of our own physical needs. We you know, manage our hygiene and our diet and our activity and so on. But there are times when we've got to go to someone who has greater expertise in the human body, who can help us get healthy and stay healthy. It's just a normal part of things. Now, you might not want to tell everybody, you know what, I'm going to psychologist or whatever, uh, but it shouldn't be any more embarrassing to find out that someone goes to a psychologist than to hear that someone went to an ophthalmologist or an allergist or a dermatologist. It's just something people do. It's part of taking care of yourself. If you're looking for a counselor, I've got a, a few recommendations about that. First is this, I'd recommend finding someone who's a Christ follower. Uh, Non-Christians can be great psychologists, but it's really helpful to have someone who shares your worldview, your values, and who can integrate kind of holistically the spiritual side of things. They can draw from prayer and the wisdom of scripture along with their expertise in psychology. If you don't know who to call about that, if you don't know Christian counselors, we would love to help you with that. Our care ministry has uh, a whole bunch of people that we refer to. We'd love to get you connected uh, to someone that we, we would recommend. Second thing I'd say is this. Remember, you don't have to stick with the first counselor you go to. This, people get hung up with this. Uh, the first person I went to was a good guy, but we didn't have great chemistry, so I tried someone else that I really click with. Uh, I'd also say that uh, you should enlist help to ask someone to help you get the appointment. Uh, depression saps your motivation, especially for things like getting help. And so to say to a spouse or a parent or a friend, hey, can you help me do the research to figure out who I should go to and call them up and make the appointment and make sure I show up for the first one to get me started, that can be a huge boost for people. Again, as you do this, this is kind of the spiritual psychological side of dealing with things. You don't want to forget the physical side of things. Not being a doctor, I can't speak authoritatively to these sorts of things. So we actually sat down with a physician who attends our church and we talked with him about what he would say about this. So I wanna show you the video of what we heard from him. Hello, my name is uh, Warren B. I'm a family doctor. I recently retired and I've been coming to Christ Community since 1985. I was an elder way back. I've been involved in high school ministry and and I've led uh, men's small groups since, consecutively since 1991. I've been struggling with depression since uh, 2000, and um, I've gotten placed on medication, and my symptoms have resolved. I, I feel like myself again. Um, and I found that uh, Christians made uh, very bad, uh, depressed, and anxious uh, patients because they were consumed by guilt over the fact that they couldn't pray their symptoms away or there should be a way that God can, can free them from, uh, from that problem. Um, I believe that he can, but I also believe that he works through doctors and medication and, and counselors to uh, help people become uh, more whole again. So to sit and not do anything about it um, is not the way to go. Uh, there's help available. Um, start with your family doctor. If your family doctor doesn't feel comfortable with uh, treating depression, um, he can refer you to a psychiatrist. But medicine works, counseling works, and, and you can feel lots better and that God can use you uh, in ways that you would otherwise uh, never be used. Medication is not a cure-all, but there are lots of people who have found that it gives them the edge to actually deal with the other aspects of their mental health. So if your doctor suggests that medication might be helpful for you, don't be ashamed to use it. Don't feel like that's some sort of lack of faith. God made you a physical being 
So use the physical means he provides for care for you. Here's the final truth I want you to see from this psalm. You don't have to be okay to belong. You don't have to be okay to belong. I I once heard someone say that being around people when you're depressed is like being the only pickled onion on a fruit salad. It's just awful. Uh, Depression can feel incredibly isolating. It convinces us that that we're the only people who've ever felt this way. I I watched a TED talk by uh, Andrew Solomon. He told a story about how he was speaking at a conference about depression. And after his talk, a woman came up to him and said, you know, I've been diagnosed with depression and I started taking medication and she asked some advice from him. And and at the end of the conversation, she said, you know, please don't tell anybody about this. I certainly wouldn't want my husband to find out because I just don't think he'd understand what I'm going through. Of course, he said, yeah, I'm not going to tell anybody. The very next day, a, a man comes up to him and it turns out, unknown to anybody, that this was the woman's husband. And he says to Solomon, he says, you know, I, I've been diagnosed with depression and I've been started taking medication and I just, I really don't want anybody to know, especially my wife, because I think she'd look down on me as a man because I'm taking antidepressants. And it turns out that the two of them had been hiding the exact same medication in different places in the same bedroom to hide it from each other. Solomon suggested that perhaps their uh, communication problems in their marriage might be triggering some of their issues and they could also work on that. But this is what happens. Depression keeps you isolated from the people who love you the most. It might actually be the most help to you. The, the amazing thing about this psalm is that it is a community psalm. Let, let me show you this. It, I'm going to highlight a detail that we didn't even read because this is something most of us skip. It's the heading at the beginning of the psalm. Look at the top of Psalm 42. It says, for the director of music, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now, first of all, no one knows what the word maskil means. It's some musical term that no one knows how to translate. But notice who wrote it, the sons of Korah. There are other psalms that were written by one person, like King David, but this song was written by the temple musicians. These are the worship leaders for the country. It's not someone's private prayer diary. This is worship leaders saying, you know what our community needs is a song that says this. They wrote it for the director of music, which means it was specifically meant to be played and sung in public occasions. Now, I want you to think about this. What would it be like if you walked into Christ Community Church we sang a song with words like this, my tears have been my food day and night. God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning? In creative arts, we talk a lot about how to work lament into our services, but it's really difficult because it makes people uncomfortable. Almost every time we do it, someone says, hey, I, I don't know how to handle that. That was weird because people don't know what to do with the, the dark and difficult emotions, especially in public. But God knew, and and wise worship leaders of the past knew that we would need to express those emotions, not just privately, but with other people. Singing about it in public validates it and normalizes the experience. They knew that having a downcast soul was not actually a rare phenomenon. There would be lots of people who would need this song. You see that as you read through the Bible. So many of our heroes are found lamenting. Moses, Naomi, David, Job, Jeremiah, Elijah. If they were around today, they would have been diagnosed with clinical depression. Think about what the experience of singing a song like this would be in public. There'd be some people who would come in and they'd say, this is exactly what I'm feeling. I sing this song from the heart. But there'd be a whole lot of people who weren't going through a dark time like that, but they'd be singing along too, not because of their own sorrow, but in solidarity with the sorrow of people around them, other brothers and sisters who are hurting. This is what God wants his people to be. He wants the church to be a place where people sing along with the sorrows of others rather than trying to change the tune. 
You don't have to be okay to belong here. Now, that is easier said than done. If we're going to make that statement believable, there are some things we're going to have to work on, all of us together, to make this that sort of community. So let's start by learning something simple. Let's start by talking about helpful things to say to someone who is depressed. We're actually going to do this as a game, a game I call Say or Not Say. Okay, I'm going to put a sentence on the the screen, and you are going to tell me, it's an audience participation one, you are going to tell me say or not say about that statement. Okay, you ready for this? First one, would you say this to someone who is depressed? You have so much to be happy about. Not say, that's right. There are some contexts where it is important for people to remember the good things in their life. When you're down, gratitude can be a helpful practice. However, if you try to coax someone into it or you just say it in a simple way like, oh, just look at your life, you've got so much you, you could be happy for, it actually makes a depressed person feel worse. I mean, they're probably already thinking thoughts like, yeah, I know. Like, I know I should be happy and grateful for the things I have, but I I just can't. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what's wrong with me. Saying this also shows that you don't really understand that depression is not so much about circumstances, about inner responses to your circumstance and how you feel. It's also not helpful to say something that compares their circumstances to someone else, like a lot of people have it worse than you, okay? That, that, That really hurts. How about this one? That sounds really hard. Say or not say. Say, absolutely, it's very good. Let someone know that you validate their experience, that you're sympathetic, you're open to hearing from them. How about this? Everyone has bad days. Everyone has bad days. Say or not say? Not say, not say. Uh, first of all, depression by definition is not just a bad day. It's a, it's a prolonged experience. But saying this can come across in a way that minimizes or dismisses someone's experience. It's sort of like saying, you know what, hey, everybody's got a hard life and other people seem to be uh, dealing with it better than you do, so get over it. How about this? Well, you don't look depressed. Say or not say? <laughs> not say. Again, it's almost as if you doubt that someone, what someone is telling you. Because you say, yeah, you look like you got your act together. You're all right. How about this? Help me understand. Say or not say? Say, anything that says you're opening to listen is good. How about this? Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Good, yeah, not say, not say. Look, when I'm in a dark place, I would love to stop feeling sorry for myself, but it's just not that simple. Again, there there may be times when a counselor or a trusted friend can help someone who's depressed kind of reframe and see things differently, but saying it like this is not gonna be the way that's gonna happen. It also makes it sound like the depressed person is just being selfish by feeling down, like they're not considering other people. It's the same reason why you wouldn't say things like, you know, you're just looking for attention or you're dragging me down. You don't realize how hard this is for me. How about this one? I'm here for you. Say, but only if you mean it. Like if you're not gonna actually be there for them, don't just say I'm gonna be there for you and then not actually be there for them. How about this? Oh, another one. I'll just throw this in there. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Should you say or not say? Say, yes. When, when you're lacking in hope, sometimes you've got to borrow hope from other people. And having someone who can pray for you is so, so helpful. But here's my warning. Do not, do not use that as a way to smuggle in advice. Like, you know when people are praying and it's like, ah, you're not talking to God anymore. Like, you're kind of talking to me, okay? Like, don't, don't do that to people. Just honestly pray. How about this? I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you say. This is one of the most powerful things that I've ever heard. Depression makes everything harder, even an ordinary day. And when someone says, I, 
I understand that what you're going through makes your life even more difficult. And you pushing through and working hard and doing what you've done, I'm proud of that. I'm amazed at that. This is especially powerful if it comes from someone the person might think they're a burden for. So when my wife has said things to this effect to me, it's been one of the most freeing, most amazing things for to say, I'm proud of you for getting through today. It's really, really amazing. How about this? Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, see, you're confused because you're like, that's in the Bible. Guys, I know that's in the Bible. I think I'm always allowed to say stuff from the Bible, right? Okay. I don't care that it's in the Bible. It's almost never appropriate to say to a depressed person. There are lots and lots of scripture that is very, very helpful that would be great to share. But using verses like this in a flippant way or out of context can over-spiritualize the, the struggle of depression. And it heaps guilt on someone because it seems like they're not able to obey that command. And so you've got to be very, very careful about throwing those things at, at people. Here's the last one. Nothing. Just listen. Say or not say. Say or, or not say. Or I don't know. I, it's very confusing, double negative. I have not worked out the grammar on this one. But it's a great thing to do. To just listen. Because here's what's going on. When you feel the pressure to have something to say to someone who's depressed, it often comes from like, okay, I need to be helpful. I need to give advice. I need to fix something. But this is the thing. It is not your responsibility to fix someone else's depression. It's just not. And so what you should say is nothing. Just be there. Be a friend. Listen. Open yourself up and say, you tell me what it's like. Now, I, I want to kind of step things up a notch and kind of talk about an even more serious thing. The kind of elephant in the room when we talk about depression is suicide. It's suicide. Uh, this is a hard thing to talk about. We don't talk about it often enough. But what do you do if you realize someone is considering taking their own life? Now, let me give you some very practical steps that I can't, this is a massive topic. I can't unpack all of it right now. But I, let me just give you something. When you realize someone is considering this, Steps you can take, okay? Five things here. First is this. Ask, listen, and take them seriously. Sometimes people worry that if they bring up the topic of suicide, it's going to make it more likely that per that person is going to follow through on that. But that just actually isn't true. The opposite is true, in fact. Talking about suicide doesn't make someone more likely to do it, but not talking about it can. So you got to ask. you got to say, is this something you're considering? Here's the worst thing that will happen. The person will say, oh, no, no, I, I wasn't thinking about that. And you can say, good, because I love you so much. I would hate for you to have to be in that sort of a place. Second thing you do, if someone does say, actually, yeah, I was thinking about that, express concern, but don't argue. Express concern, but don't argue. Trying to convince someone by argument is usually not helpful. What is most helpful is expressing your love for them, your care, your desire to help them, your concern for them. And then once you've done that, the third step is this. Check for a plan. Now, this is the most awkward part because uh, these are questions that we just, we just don't know how to ask. But you need to assess how serious someone is and what they're thinking about. So you ask directly, do you have a plan? And if the person says yes, then you follow up with an even harder question. You say, do you have the means to carry out that plan? Do you have the pills or the gun or whatever they, they described? Because you've got to know how, how likely is this to happen? How, how, how close to danger are they? And then the next question, if they say, yeah, I've got those things, you say, have you decided when? Have you picked a time frame? And they might say, yeah, actually, I was thinking about whenever. It, this is really, really hard, but it lets you know just how urgent the situation is. And once you figure that out, you should immediately, immediately get help. That's the fourth step. 
Do not try to solve this on your own. If someone has already done something to harm themselves, immediately call 911. If you don't know what to do, you can call 911. Uh, if you can get them to or, or you have the number, you can have them call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, I've got the number up here. You should save that in the context in your phone. It, heaven forbid you need it, but heaven forbid you not have it if you do need it. The, the fifth step is this. Follow up with that person. After, after that moment has been uh, addressed, do not abandon your friend. It's a very vulnerable thing to share that you've been thinking those thoughts with someone. So the next time you see them, don't get weird. So get close to them. Make sure you're supporting them. T take this seriously. You might save a life by doing this. Actually, here's what I want you to do. Get out your phone and take a picture of that, okay? Because most of us were like, what do I do in that situation? Take a picture of that and, 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 and look it over uh, again after this. Now, I do want to say this as I talk about suicide. I, I don't want you to think that every depressed person is also suicidal. That is not true. Some people who are depressed have suicidal thoughts. Other people don't. So don't assume that if someone says, I'm depressed, that they're also thinking about taking their life. That, that, that can be really uh, complicated and harmful for people if you just assume that. Uh, part of walking with people through mental health issues is perseverance. Because people don't always get better real fast. Right, listen to this quote from Amy Simpson. She says, when churches have antibiotic-like expe expectations for mental health treatment, they communicate, go get treated, and then you can come back and you can be a growing Christian with us. The problem is many people can get treated for the rest of their lives and learn to manage an illness but never be over it. For some, their illness is a disability that will hinder them to some degree or at least occasionally and even daily. Our expectations of healing cause frustration for everyone, and they send the false message that God is patient and loving with us, but only up to a point. And past that point, we're on our own. We have to be a community that is as patient as God is, walking with people through all the ups and downs, even if it takes a long time, even if it takes a lifetime. Here's the last thing I want to point out. Look at verse 8 in Psalm 42. It says, day by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God's song is with me. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to hear God sing? What kind of songs would he sing? Would they be peaceful songs, joyful songs, triumphant songs? Probably. But it's actually pretty interesting to think about the songs that we know God has actually sung. I want you to picture with me Jesus. You're sitting with him and his disciples on a hillside in Israel. There's a fire where dinner is cooking and you're watching the sunset. And you're singing a song together. What songs would the disciples and Jesus have been singing at that moment? Probably the Psalms. We know that Jesus sang the Psalms, including this one. Why, O oh my soul, are you downcast within me? When God was on earth, he sang the laments. The Bible tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We don't know if Jesus was ever depressed in the sort of clinical sense, but we know that the weight of the world was on him. And there were times when he wept and he cried out in anguish. And we know that in the moments when he died, there was a lament on his lips. This is the reason we can have hope in the midst of depression. Because God sang our song of sorrow so that he could give us his song of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here who are feeling like the darkness is overshadowing them. Like they are alone in their depression. God, I, I pray for each one of them that you would make your presence known to them, 
that you would know that no matter how far away it seems like you are, you hear them, you're for them, you're with them, and that there are people who are ready to love them. God, I pray for our, our church as a community that you make us a kind of place where we actually know how to care for people who are walking through dark times, that we would be a place that's safe for people to be honest and say, yeah, this is what's on the inside. They don't have to hide it. God, I pray that you'd help us do that. We know that it'll take a miracle. It'll take the power of your spirit making us like your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.